Well, we're in James chapter 5 today. And <clears throat> James 5 is, uh, it's not an easy passage. Um, it reminds me as we're reading through John, a little interaction Jesus had uh, with his uh, disciples, his followers, and the, the, the crowds that were around him in, uh, in John chapter 6. Jesus is telling the people that they have to eat his flesh. It's a pretty, it's a pretty daunting challenge. If you want to follow me, Jesus says, you must be so committed to me that it's as if you would eat my own flesh and it sends many people away. John 60, John tells us when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And many people, in fact, did take offense, and many did leave him, and Jesus challenges them. He challenges them. And Peter's response is, when Jesus says, you know, do you, do you also want to depart from me? Peter's response is, who else can we go to? <laughs> you have the words of life, Father. And we find something similar in James chapter 5 today. James 5 teaches about the justice of God. And when we hear about the justice of God, it causes offense, particularly in our culture. Uh, we are very sensitive people. And as much as we like to uh, get involved in partisan bickering and point out that other people are wrong, we don't like being told that we are wrong. When we talk about the justice of God today, we're going to see two things. The justice of God brings judgment for those who are selfish with the goods of this world, but it also brings rescue for those who are waiting for the return of Christ. It's, it's a double-edged sword, if you will. Justice means both judgment and rescue. Let me read James chapter 5 for us uh, from verse 1 through verse 11. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, it's up here on the screen behind me. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is 
standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is God's word. So I think you could see here a pretty clear division between the threat of judgment and the promise of rescue. These two halves of this passage hang together and divide very clearly, really, at between verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 and before gives this threat of justice to those who are selfish with this world's goods. But verse 7 and following uses the same truth to give comfort to God's people that he will rescue them. And as we, as we jump into this first half of the passage here, we'll kind of take it in two halves like that. I want you to ponder this, brothers and sisters. This is one of those passages that, uh, I don't know if you noticed it as we were reading through, there's, there's almost, uh, it's, it's sort of an unbroken threat. There's not, really, uh, there's not really any pause. He doesn't take a breath to say, you know, but, but this won't happen to you uh, unless. Really, the only call for repentance that we have is in that very first verse where he says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I think that's a call to repentance. I think that's a call to repentance. He's speaking to rich people who are listening to him and saying, if you will turn, if you will adopt this posture towards the Lord, a posture of weeping, of brokenness, of contriteness, then these threats will lead you to a good outcome. Otherwise, this is a warning to you of what's to come. And as we're pondering this, and, and we're just thinking about this letter, right? This is uh, James's letter. I've uh, called it uh, being transformed in Christ. Um, James is a little different than we're used to reading in the New Testament. Most of us, if you, if you read the Bible frequently, are, are familiar with Paul. He kind of uh, moves to the front of our minds often because Paul is... Uh, he's so full of promises, and he draws such a, 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 a bright line between faith and works. He promises us as believers, uh, and he, he's faithful to, to bring this, to emphasize uh, that our acceptance with God is not because we're so good. It's not because we're so generous. It's not because we have changed so much. Our acceptance with God comes for one reason, because we've put our trust in Jesus. It's an act of trust. It's not, a, it's not an, an action outwardly. And yet, we do see that Paul and James agree on this, that both of them say, but the person who truly trusts in Jesus will live a transformed life. And that's what James is after today. He's saying, if you truly trust in God, if you truly trust the promises that he's made to us in Jesus, it will lead to this sort of transformation in your life so that you're free of the love of money, so that you can live this new life of freedom where you're not only generous, you're also patient. That's the second half of the passage. That's where we're going to be going. So in this, these warnings that he gives in the first half here, 
There are basically three reasons that judgment will come upon the rich. Three reasons that judgment will come upon the rich. And as we look at these three reasons, I want you to ponder, each of us, brothers and sisters, as we're here, we are wealthy. Just no two ways about it. If you live in the United States, you're wealthy. I think the the statistic is something like if you own two pairs of shoes, you are in the top 10% of, uh, of, of affluent people in the world. We are wealthy, regardless of how much you make, regardless of what your paycheck says or if you're living on a fixed income. But more than that, I don't have to tell you what the median household income is in our community. It's high. We are wealthy. And as we look at this today, I just, I urge you, do not turn aside from God's word. You don't have to take my word for it. Just listen to the words of scripture. (laughs) Anything that I say that's above scripture, you can get rid of. But whatever scripture speaks, please Listen to this. Take to heart this warning. We are the rich. And the warnings about riches are some of the most sobering in Scripture. Jesus said how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is difficult. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Read. Impossible. (laughs) It's impossible unless you are cut up transformed into the, into that new being by Christ. A camel would have to be cut up into a thousand, a billion tiny pieces to go through the eye of a needle. And so also you must be transformed by Christ. So open your hearts, listen to the word of God. The first reason for judgment against the rich is because they hoard wealth. They hoard wealth. Paul, uh, excuse me, James speaks about their rotten riches and their moth-eaten clothes in verse 2. And in verse 3, he says, your gold and silver have corroded. And I know I'm in a room full of scientists. Gold doesn't corrode. Silver and gold are called, called the noble metals, you will tell me, since they resist corrosion when they're in their purest form. True. True enough. But James looks forward to a future when God's judgment will bring poetic justice to perfection. Goods that have been hoarded and kept back for our use when there are needy people around us. Gold stored up in banks, garments stored up in bureaus. The doors will be thrown open on that day and it will be revealed what you have held back, how much you kept back for yourself. And those things will be shown to be useless on that day. Whatever value, excuse me, whatever value they have now, they will have no value on the day of judgment. And in that sense, the gold will be totally eaten up by corrosion. Worthless. The value is going to be wasted if it's selfishly stored up for us, if we hoard back our resources for ourselves alone. James says, their corrosion will be evidence against you. Verse 3, their corrosion will be evidence against you. In what way? In what way? 
Well, the evidence that they provide is, is evidence brought forward in the courtroom. They are exhibit A about where a person's trust truly is. God won't have to, he won't have to argue with you about it. Where's your trust? He just pulls up your bank account. Look how much you lived with for yourself. Look where your security really was. Is it in savings accounts or is it in the promises of God to care for you? Do you have, do you hoard for yourself more than you need? I I can't make a rule about how much is too much. That's going too far. And scripture doesn't, doesn't do that for us. Instead, it puts the burden on each of us, on each of us individually to ask that question. It doesn't give us percentages in the new covenant. We each have to look at texts like this one and pray for grace to honestly search our hearts and lay them open before God's word that he would search us. If you're asking yourself, how much is enough for me, for my family, for my retirement? I just want to point you to these words in verse 3. After he says their corrosion will be evidence against you, he says they will eat your flesh like fire. Consider, if the more you keep back, the more it will eat your flesh like fire. Wouldn't you want to say, God, push me to the ragged edge. Teach me generosity. So that I would not hoard back for myself more that will be my own destruction, that will be witness against me in the future. Each one of us will have to give an answer to God, brothers and sisters. And the more we hoard our wealth for ourselves, the more we store it up and keep it back when there are needs around us that must be met, the more it will witness against us and act in this flesh-consuming way. I think, and I'll, I'll, I'll end here on this conversation about hoarding, I think that Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8 are probably the best answer here, and I'll put them up on the screen. In 2 Corinthians 8, he has kind of a, a long discussion with the Corinthians. They had promised to, uh, to give in, in support of some, some Christians who were in the midst of a famine in Jerusalem. They made this promise. He finds out that they haven't been keeping the promise. And he says to them, I want you to give generously. But look at specifically what he says here. First Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians 8, starting in verse 13. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. This is an interesting passage, and fairness doesn't come up often in Scripture. (laughs) But Paul points to it here, I think, to remind us, wealthy Christians, that just because we say, well, higher cost of living and, you know, more income and eh, I've worked a little bit harder for it. I have more degrees, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, unrighteous poor, all that. He says, that's not going to work in the kingdom of heaven. There will be a question of fairness. Have you looked out for the needs of others? But he also says, I'm not saying that you have to burden yourself. You see that right at the beginning of, of verse 13. I'm not saying that you have to be burdened and other people have to be eased. 
You don't have to give so much that, that you've given away any sense of, uh, any, uh, to meet your own needs and your family's needs. But I do want you to have a concern for the needs of others. Period on that one. First reason for judgment, hoarding wealth. The second reason for judgment, dishonest treatment of employees. You'll see this in verse 4. The judgment that's coming here <clears throat> is God's justice on fraudulent treatment of the laborers that these people have. He says the, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And listen to what he says. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is uh, reminiscent of so many Old Testament passages. If you are familiar at all with uh, the, the prophets, these kind of wild-eyed, crazy-haired uh, covenant keepers in the Old Testament, their job was to remind the people, your sins will not be forgotten. <laughs> they will be punished. And even though you may put people to death, as we read at the very end of this passage in verse 6, even though you may... You may be able to silence them in this life. Their cries will be heard because the king of heaven listens to them. He cares for the oppressed. And the judgment that's coming is God's justice. Not just some international criminal court or something like that that has some reach, but whose arms end at some point. The arm of God will reach to the very least person and the very last sin, and it will correct all those. His ears are not deaf to the suffering of the oppressed. He will revenge them. And this name that James uses here, the Lord of hosts, it means the Lord of armies. Hosts is just another word for troops, soldiers, armies. God is a God who is capable of bringing vengeance and justice on those who have oppressed the poor. I don't know exactly what this looks like in your life. Perhaps, you know, most of us, uh, if, you, if you work at the lab, you don't technically have employees who you're paying exactly. But, you know, we all have uh, probably dealings with small businesses here in Los Alamos. And if you hold back a payment that is owed to a small business, somebody's done you... Uh, done a service for you, completed the work, you owe them that money and you hold it back from them, it does have an impact on many small business owners. And I'm sure you can find other applications in your own life. Do not hold back the wages of those to whom they're due. Finally, uh, the third thing here, the third reason for judgment, self-indulgent lifestyles. Self-indulgent lifestyles, verses 5 and 6. Uh, in verse uh, 5, James says, you've, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And he doesn't specify exactly what this is. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't get down to details, and probably that's best, because then <clears throat> each one of us can apply this appropriately to ourselves. You know, as well as I do, <laughs> the, the draw of just hopping online real quick. Oh yeah, there was that one other thing that I needed. You know what would make my life easier? Click purchase. Uh, you know, I, sometimes we complain about living in a small town with just the Smiths here, but Amazon's always at our fingertips, right? <laughs> and it does tend 
towards self-indulgence, does it not? I mean, I'm a geek, so it's like books for me, but it may be something else for you. We all have that thing that we just say, yeah, I'm going to get another one. Yeah, I, I do want that. So, yeah, you know, me day, uh, time, to, time to do a little bit more self-care. Self-indulgence is something that we're all prone to and something that we should all be wary of. And I think the movement in this passage is, it is, it is a movement of condemnation. But if we, if we take those opening words, weep and howl as a warning to us, repent for, for any sort, any sort of, of love of money that's active in your life and in your heart, then what we do is this. We look at this justice of God and we say, that is a sure and certain thing. That's where I look first. I don't look to God saying, well, he told me I shouldn't spend on myself. And so begrudgingly, I say, fine, I won't spend on myself. (laughs) Fine, I'll just hold it back. I'll just save it. Because that's the exact opposite of what he's saying here. He doesn't want us to hoard up wealth. He wants us to move towards generosity. As we see the coming wrath of God, it should lead us to to a new way of looking at things so that we can say, this is is something that we can build our lives on. The justice of God is coming. And if you hide yourself in Christ, and this is where we're going to go in this next section, if you hide yourself in Christ you can know for certain that this justice is not for you. And that leads to a transformed life. That leads to generosity. I think that's the movement of this passage. That that should be the application to our lives. Turn away from hoarding. Turn away from self-indulgence. Turn away from, from defrauding others. James is speaking to us, regardless of how much you make, regardless of how many incomes there are in your household. His words have application to us so that we could say i know who i am i know what i make and let me challenge you brothers and sisters if you honestly want to know if you, if you really want to have your heart laid bare i think you could share your income with another brother or sister here a trustworthy brother or sister in the church to say hey this is this is the total financial picture tell me what you think Am I being generous? I, I, I want to lay myself bare. I mean, that's radical, right? We don't do that. We, we, we hardly ask what, you know, are you a scientist three or four? You go searching on the website for it. You look at the business card. But honestly, open yourself to the help of a brother or sister who will, who will look at, who will look at that, that financial picture with you and will say, yeah, you know, I do, think, I do think you can grow more here. Or I'm personally challenged. Now that I've seen what you're doing, I'm personally challenged to give more. This sort of community effort can really help us in this thing because let's just be honest, and I felt this myself as I'm working through this passage this week, we tend to justify our own spending habits. We just tend to justify our own spending habits. And this sort of warning should just shock us awake. Brothers and sisters, I'm trying to faithfully preach this. Your blood be on your own heads. I don't, I don't say that jokingly. I say that totally seriously. Take this passage to heart. I know I need to. So the first thing we see here is that the justice of God is a warning about judgment to come for those who are selfish with their own money and possessions. The second thing we see here is that this coming justice 
is also a cause for patience. It is also a cause for patience. Namely, because Jesus' return will bring justice for those who suffer. Jesus' return will bring justice for those who suffer. This encouragement for those who believe in Christ is really just the second half of the same teaching. It's two sides of the same coin. Justice is coming, and it means judgment for some. It means rescue for others. And, and for those for whom it means a rescue, it should give patience. It should be a cause for patience among us. That's, that is the, the chief uh, command that James begins with here in verse 7. He says, be patient. Therefore, brothers and sisters, and then he goes on to, to use the word patience four more times, three more times, four total in this passage. Patience is at the heart of what he's calling for here. And I, I do want you to, to just see very clearly this connection between justice in the first half and justice in the second, because in verse seven, he says, be patient. Therefore, brothers and sisters, that therefore is a logical connection because of what I've just said. Therefore, you also should be patient. <laughs> if you have hidden yourself in Christ, then the coming justice is no threat to you. It's a reason for this transformed life. Generosity and in an equally important way, patience. So he says, uh, therefore, be patient. Patience and steadfastness are really the two main commands in this second half. And you'll see the word steadfastness used twice there in, uh, in the very last verse, verse 11. It's a, it's a near synonym for patience. Um, they are related, but slightly different. So I, I and we'll, we'll talk about steadfastness when we get to it. But I just want to ask, because this is what we should ask. Why patience? I mean, what do we need patience for? Why would he, why would he turn to patience? We've heard, if you've been uh, with us in this series, or if you've, if you've read the book of James before, you know several times throughout this book, James is encouraging these believers because they're in the midst of some kind of suffering. There is both internal turmoil in the, in the churches to, to which he writes, but there's also some sort of trial that's going on. He, he opens his letter that way. Count it all joy when you endure various trials, he says. So they are in the midst of some sort of pressing trial, something that is challenging them. And patience is necessary when we wait. That's the answer, I think. Why do we need patience? Because we're waiting for something. <laughs> you need patience when you don't yet have what you're longing for. And specifically, you need patience for overlooking wrongs that are done to you. You need patience overlooking the wrongs that are done to you so that you don't respond in frustration, but you learn to wait. You learn to wait for the justice that's coming. So we need patience at various times in our lives, particularly when we're tried by difficult circumstances or by difficult people whom we're around. What does James say to be patient for? Very simple. Verse seven, uh, second half of that first sentence, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord, <clears throat> he says. We are all looking for something. We're all waiting for something, some satisfaction. It may be as close as 
tomorrow, the holiday. <laughs> you may have an adventure that you're just waiting for. Oh man, I can't wait to get out on the, out on the trail, uh, hiking, biking, whatever it is that you're hoping to do for your holiday tomorrow. Grill out, a uh, special time together with fam. That's, that's the satisfaction that I'm looking for. Or you may be looking for something else to make you more happy. Graduation. College. That first big paycheck where you finally make an adult's wage. Marriage, perhaps. You may be waiting for uh, just hours of peace and quiet. It could be a great thing. It could be a small thing. We're all looking forward to things that we think will make us happy. If I could just have that, I'll be, I'll be satisfied. And when we find that we will have to wait longer, when something or someone gets in the way of that goal, that thing that we're seeking, we tend to get frustrated. And we tend to voice our frustration against whoever it is that gets in our way. Tend to voice your frustration against your kids when they come in at three in the morning asking to go to the bathroom. I just wanted a little bit more sleep. And James warns us in verse 9 that we shouldn't grumble in these circumstances. He says, don't grumble against one another. This word grumbling uh, can also be translated groaning. Uh, some of your Bibles have complaining. And uh, half the uses in the New Testament are Paul uh, using it to describe this sort of groaning that we have to put off our fleshly bodies, to get rid of the sinful, uh, the, the sinful challenges that we have. We groan as we wait for the new creation, he says, for freedom from these burdens that we have. And you can imagine this sort of groaning complaint against someone else. Oh, brother, here comes so-and-so. They always talk about themselves at small group. Uh, they always draw attention to themselves. They're always talking about all their own problems. Why would we groan about someone like that? Frankly, it's because they get in the way of us talking about our problems. <laughs> I have problems too, don't you know? Can't you spread it out a little bit? We want as much airtime for our lives and our issues. We are waiting to talk about ourselves. We find some satisfaction in that, and so we groan in our hearts. Or perhaps you complain to someone else. And James's warning here is in the midst of these sort of challenges, be patient. Don't grumble. Don't groan about those around you. But he doesn't merely just give us this command and say kind of like, do better, work harder. He gives us a new strength of source to do this. Look at verse 8. He says, strengthen your hearts. My translation has establish your hearts. I think the New American Standard says, stand firm, something like that. Strengthen your hearts. Because we should be waiting, he says, for the coming of the Lord. You know, um, I've been listening to this uh, audiobook on caffeine uh, by Michael Poulin. Interesting little thing. Um, and, uh, I mean, he says that caffeine is like the inflection point in the modern world. The invention, uh, you know, the, the access to caffeine in the Western world allowed us to make all these, uh, stay up late, wake up early, work harder and all that bit. You know, caffeine though, caffeine doesn't, doesn't truly give us energy, right? It just, uh, blocks certain receptors in our brain, uh, so that we feel more awake, more alive for an hour or two. Uh, three, if you're not used to it. <laughs> uh, what we need, though, to actually do work, right? If you're going out to uh, 
to, uh, you know, to, to, to work in your backyard, dig a ditch, something like that. You need calories. Calories will provide you the strength necessary to keep going. Caffeine may wake you up for a little bit, but without calories, you will not be able to do that work. And I think that's sort of like what James is offering us here. There's all these philosophies in the world, right? Like, yeah, be patient, count to 10, uh, you know, 10,000 other little uh, sort of uh, tactics, tricks, ways you can sort of try and, you know, make yourself more patient in the moment. But without, without the strength, without some solid strength, some kind of spiritual calories, you will not be able to maintain this. James is pointing us to the real source of our strength. Nothing less than the fact that the return of Christ is coming soon. That's where we should strengthen our hearts. That's where we should be established so that then we can turn around and out of that operate in patience again and again. When we're challenged, when we fall down, when you fail to be patient, the way that you get back up is by looking to the near return of Christ, the arrival of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. And that's what he means here when he says in verse seven, be patient until the coming of the Lord. He means the coming of Jesus. He doesn't just mean, you know, God's justice generally, like we saw in the first half of this passage. Now he's talking about the return of Jesus. And the return of Jesus is one of those doctrines in the New Testament that is so common you can't escape it if you've read any of the New Testament. It's so much a part of kind of common knowledge about what Christianity is that, I mean, it's even mocked in the world around us. I've seen bumper stickers mocking the return of Christ. <laughs> We're well known for the fact that Jesus is going to return because it's central to our faith. The New Testament makes something like 300 references to the return of Christ. More references to the return of Christ than there are chapters in the New Testament. So it's core to who we are. Jesus began that process. He told his disciples, I will come back for you. I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you. I will come back for you. And when I do, I'm going to set everything right. That was his promise. I will set everything right. I will bring justice. You can... You can count on it. You can look forward to it. And all the rest of the apostles then continue that pattern throughout the rest of the New Testament. Jesus spoke very clearly about it to his disciples. You can look at Matthew 24 for one great passage. I'm, we're not going to look at it today, but a great place where Jesus talks about his return. And he tells them his return will be unmistakable. It'll be visible like lightning in the sky. No one will miss it. His return will be in the flesh and he will establish a real world presence here on earth where his followers will live with him. James doesn't go into detail about it here in our passage because he just assumes everybody knows about it. It's common knowledge among the believers. But what James does say about the return of Jesus is that it should give us a firm basis for our patience. How does that work? How does this provide the calories that we need to be patient in the midst of challenging circumstances. If the return of Jesus is the thing that we're most looking forward to, it frees us up from these other short-term goals that we have. doesn't mean you don't have other goals. doesn't mean you don't plan. But it means that when your plans are frustrated, when you realize, I'm not going to be able to accomplish that thing, maybe it's a life project that you have, sort of a death of a dream. And you realize... I'm never actually going to finish that. I'm too old now. 
Uh, I'm never going to be able to complete that. I didn't get into the school that I was hoping for. I'm not going to be able to complete that. I don't have access to the resources. I don't have the intelligence I thought I had. Something like that. When you come to that sort of death of a dream, Jesus and the return of Jesus, the fact that he will make everything right, provides a solid basis for you to say, it's going to be okay. I don't have to flail. This is, brothers and sisters, this is what will help us through, in our deepest needs, suicidal ideations. This is where we look. When you're in that dark moment, everything seems to be falling apart. Jesus is coming back. He will set everything right. I can't tell you all the, end, the ends of every one of your stories. I don't even know my own, the, the end of my own story. But I can tell you this. When Jesus returns, he will set things so right that we will each see this was good. My story is, is true, and it's good. James holds out the return of Christ and the justice that he will bring as the ending that we need to each of our stories to make them meaningful so that we can be patient in the midst of whatever challenges we face great or small. The promise of justice when Jesus returns is that he will correct all wrongs. Some of you I know may have been physically hurt in a way that you'll never recover from. Tragic accident, perhaps someone else, someone else's fault. Some of us bear emotional scars and wounds from mistreatments that we've received from others. And they won't leave you in this life. You won't be able to solve them in this life. But the patience that you need to live under those crushing burdens is found right here in the solid basis that Jesus will return and he will set things right. And when he returns, justice will be done and it will be seen to be done. Every injustice, no matter how little it seems in the world's eyes, no matter how long ago it happened, or how much everyone else seems to have already moved past it, will be settled in the best way possible. That's how the coming justice of God in the return of Jesus produces patience in us. And James gives us two examples of patience here. First, the prophets, and then Job. Let me consider the prophets at first. Uh, he mentions them in verse 10 as an example of suffering and patience. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. How do they provide an example for us? Uh, before the time of Jesus, uh, we've got kind of the, the Old Testament, we call it the Israelite religion, Judaism, historic Judaism. And those, those people had spokesmen, spokesmen from God men and women who spoke to them on the basis of God's word, correcting the errors of the people, calling them back to God, urging them to restore their love for God and to turn away from all sorts of false forms of worship, idols, etc. Now, the prophets don't record a whole lot of the insulting things that were said to them, but you can imagine when you come to a large group of people and say, stop doing what you're doing, <laughs> you should turn away from that. 
it's not sort of like the win friends and influence people tour. The Old Testament history books outside of the prophets do record the mistreatment of the prophets. So they didn't talk a lot. The prophets didn't talk a lot in their writings that we have about all the insults that they received. But those who are around them remind us it wasn't easy for them. And it took great patience. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus sums up kind of all the ministries of of all these different prophets. And he says in Matthew 5, starting in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Reviling, persecuting, and having all kinds of evil things spoken about them pretty much sums up the life of the prophets they lived on the the margins of society and it's interesting that they hardly mention the insults that they received that the prophets hardly say that about themselves i i think that's jesus's point and i think that's james's point here too these people suffered greatly they spoke on god's behalf they received insults for it And when you suffer, brothers and sisters, as an example, a pattern that you can look to, realize that you're walking in the footsteps of the prophets. Your companions in suffering are the Old Testament prophets and prophetesses. Elijah, Deborah, Isaiah, all those who suffered at the hands of the authorities, at the hands of of the wider populace, that's who you stand with. Let this be an encouragement to you so that when you are mistreated, you know what noble companions you have. Let that be an encouragement to you for patience in your life. And the second example that James gives is Job. Uh, Job, you'll see this in verse 11. Uh, Job is a slightly different kind of example. Um, His suffering was not mainly insults and reviling, but great losses in his life. You know the book of Job, I hope. Uh, One of the great pieces of literature in the ancient world, uh, outside of just the the Christian and and Jewish traditions, widely recognized as one of the the kind of uh, uh, an ancient piece that really set a culture in motion. It struggles with the classic issue that so many uh, religions, so many philosophies have struggled with, thrown themselves against and failed to answer. And The essence of it is this. Job is a righteous man. He suffers a a great loss because the accuser comes and says, you know, he only trusts in you, God, because you give him stuff. And so God says, take it away and see what happens. He loses all his possessions. All of his children die in a single accident. And to top it all, he loses his health. He has some sort of painful skin disease. And the question of God's involvement in human tragedy becomes the uh, motivating principle in the book of Job. After his losses, three of his friends come to comfort him, and they end up accusing him because they have a very specific view of the world. Righteous people don't suffer. If you're enduring tragedy, they say, we know that you did something. We don't know what it is. You haven't confessed to it, but we know that God doesn't make righteous people suffer. 
and Job goes on the offense, on the defense, excuse me. And he, he begins arguing with them. Listen, I'm, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything to deserve this. He even begins to debate with God. I want an answer. Come down here. Why are you doing this to me? And he, he pleads with God, ultimately demanding an answer from the Lord. But Job steadfastly maintains his trust in God. Through the whole book, he never turns in doubt away from God. At the, at the beginning of the book, he's challenged. His, his wife says, Job, after all this happened, curse God and just die. Who cares? It's not worth it. And he won't do it. And that, that becomes the tenor of the book. Job's tenacious faith in the midst of it. He continues to trust in God and in God's justice waiting for an answer from the Lord. And so when we see Job given as an example of steadfastness here, I hope you don't scoff. We shouldn't. <laughs> I have heard some people do this before, and I think sometimes we're tempted to do it ourselves. I've been tempted to do it myself because when we read the book of Job, Job's rhetoric gets pretty hot at points. He's frustrated. He's angry. But consider the losses. Consider the back-to-back nature of his losses. And consider how his friends failed to comfort him in the midst of it, failed to hold him up, how they were a challenge and a test and a trial to him. And I hope that you will see that he was, in fact, steadfast for maintaining his faith in the midst of it. And James says here, you have seen the purpose of the Lord in verse 11. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. The book ends with uh, Job getting his desired uh, day in court with the Lord. God doesn't answer his question about why. He answers a different question, a question about who. God puts himself out there and says, Job, this is who I am. Look at my control of the universe. Consider all that I do. How can I not also do right with you? How would you not trust me with a lesser thing, one life, one simple life and set of generations. And so we see the purpose of God. Ultimately, he restores all that was lost to Job. And don't, don't miss the point here. I think we could easily misread this and say, all right, God's purpose is to restore all that's lost in this life. He did it for Job. He must do it for me. I don't think that's what James is saying. But he is saying God's purpose is to restore all that's been lost, if not in this life, then in the one to come. And I think that's what James is doing. He's pushing out our vision of the end of our story. Death isn't the end of your story. There is another chapter, the return of Jesus. And when you see that ending to your story, when you see that as the conclusion, not death, death cutting off whatever options you have, death with regrets, death looking back on all the struggles that you've had and many unanswered questions. When that doesn't become the final chapter, but the return of Christ becomes the final chapter, then this capstone makes your story sensible. It makes your story sensible so that you can be patient in the midst of it. You know that God does have a purpose and his purpose ultimately is to restore all things. His purpose is to bring justice, not necessarily in this life, but he will not fail to bring justice 
to every circumstance, no matter how small. And when we learn to tell our own story this way, with that ending, with the ending of Jesus' return and God's purpose to restore all things, then we can affirm what James does in verse 11. He says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how he's compassionate and merciful. That word compassionate means full, it literally means full of compassion or, or full of tender affections. That refers to God's inmost beings. This word affections refers to that, that deep down feeling where your heart goes out to someone else in the midst of suffering. God is full of tender affection. Aaron read for us earlier in James, uh, excuse me, John chapter 11 about Jesus going to the tomb of Lazarus. I mean, Jesus' affection is, is on perfect display there. He goes to, the, he goes to uh, Bethany. He sees Martha. He goes and sees Mary. And it says that he's deeply moved in his spirit and, and troubled. And then he, he says, uh, take me to where you've laid him. And when he goes there, it says he weeps. He weeps. And, you know, I mean, this should be one of those kind of those uh, clanging dissonance in, in our minds as we read it. He knows he has the power of resurrection that very day. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet his heart goes out to Mary and Martha in the midst of their suffering right there, knowing that the resurrection is just around the corner for them. Christians, behold your God, full of compassion, full of tender affections. He sees your sufferings brothers and sisters, and he cares for each one of us. None of us are too small that he will overlook our sorrows, whatever they are, and that his heart won't go out to us. He feels with you. He sympathizes with you in your sufferings. Whatever your sufferings are, a life-changing physical injury, an unjust divorce, the abuse of years past, the sudden death of a loved one. When you see the end of your story in Jesus' return and perfect justice, then you can remain steadfast and patient, enduring these sufferings, knowing that God is telling a story that will make sense from the perspective of the end, even if it never does in this life, because we know that the author is full of compassion, that he's tender towards us in the midst of our sufferings. Jesus is coming back. This is the hope that frees us to live generously and to wait patiently. Let's pray together, and then I'll offer a final benediction. Father, we love you, and we thank you that you are tender to us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you see our sufferings and you care. You don't just brush us off. You don't only care for the heads of state. You don't only care for nations or cultures at the highest level. You look at little individuals like us and you hear our cries. You hear the cries of the oppressed and you will bring justice. Oh, Lord, we pray, come quickly and do a good work in our hearts 
so that we would be open and honest, that you would lay bare our own desires before you, that we would set them not on money, not on financial security, that you would do a good work among us, Lord, so that we would be well-known for generosity and well-known for patience as well in the midst of suffering. We pray these things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll stand, we'll close with these words.